Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome, everybody, to episode 29 of Push Dose EMS, your monthly educational offering from the Milwaukee County Office of Emergency Management. I'm Jeff Matcher, your host. Uh, joining me today are a grouping of our regular suspects. Uh, so going down my list on the call, I have System Medical Director, Dr. Ben Weston. Dr. Weston, welcome. Thank you, Jeff. Excited to be here. I have Assistant Medical Director, Dr. Tom Engel. Dr. Engel, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me back, Jeff. And last but not least, uh, EMS fellow, Dr. Nick Wuklinski. Dr. Wuklinski, welcome. Hey, Jeff. Thanks. As usual, before we dive into the meat of the topic today, I will turn it over to Dr. Weston for a brief message. All right. Thanks, Jeff. Um, so today's topic is uh, renal disease and dialysis. I think uh, it's one of the most interesting and most complicated disease processes out there. Uh, I think it's interesting because it just can affect so many aspects uh, of the human body and affects so many different areas of medicine, whether it's uh, electrolyte abnormalities, hyperkalemia, uremia, uh, fluid overload with all sorts of uh, interesting and challenging implications of that, infection, fistula issues, the list just goes on and on. So we could talk about this for days, but we're not. We're going to talk about it in a short concise segment and try to get the information to you that you need to address these complex patients, but patients that are uh, very amenable to pre-hospital interventions. So without further ado, I'll hand it back to Jeff and we'll get things moving. Thank you, Dr. Weston. No updates from the office this month, so uh, we'll get right into the meat of our topic. Uh, so Dr. Engel and Dr. McClinsky, take it away. All right, Jeff. Thanks so much. As you mentioned, in, uh, this month, uh, Dr. Engel will be joining us on this podcast as uh, Dr. McGlynn is still on maternity leave, but she'll be back with us next month. Um, so, you know, while we have discussed some important concepts over the past couple of podcasts that touch on a lot of the non-medical aspects of your job, this month, we're going to get back to the medicine side of things, and we're going to be talking about dialysis. Now, this may not seem like a very riveting subject, but we encounter dialysis patients often. And as Dr. Weston mentioned, these patients have a very high risk of becoming critically ill and need to be approached with extra caution and care. Not only do they harbor an altered and complex physiology, but they have extra hardware, such as like fistulas, grafts, or lines that require special attention. So without further ado, let's dive in. And Dr. Engel will start by talking about some pathophysiology behind kidney disease. Thanks, Nick. Um, so we're going to kind of talk about the pathophysiology behind the kidney disease. So like lots of organs, the kidneys are really robust and they're able to bounce back from many insults thrown their way. However, this ability is hampered with persistent insults, such as uncontrolled high blood pressure or diabetes over a long period of time, as well as large acute insults, such as profound shock or obstruction from the urine output. Additionally, you can have underlying congenital problems that can lead to problems with a person's kidneys. When insults initially develop, it's termed an acute kidney injury. These injuries tend to be temporary, but can result in transient disruption in kidney function, placing patients at similar risk for complications as seen in those with acute or chronic kidney disease. If acute kidney injury is not addressed, it can progress into chronic kidney disease or permanent reduction in kidney function. These patients still make urine and filter out toxins and electrolytes like those of the normal kidney. However, they're more sensitive to future insults. If this chronic kidney disease progresses, it can turn into end-stage renal disease. 
At this point, the kidneys are unable to keep up with the body's physiologic needs, such as maintaining volume status, electrolyte balances, and toxins. And thus, these patients often require dialysis to perform those usual needs for them. The way we uh, provide dialysis for patients is really three main ways. First is hemodialysis. This is a machine that filters the blood for the patient. It usually is required for the patient to have dialysis two to three times a week. The sessions last somewhere between four and six hours, and it typically requires an access site for them to perform dialysis at. Those access sites can be anything from an AV fistula. This is where they take an artery and a vein and connect it to each other. This is usually in the arm, but can be on any limb of the body, and it takes around eight weeks to mature. So once you make a fistula, it's not immediately ready to use. You can have AV graft. The concept is similar to a fistula, but it's more of a synthetic material that they use to make the connection between the artery and the vein. These are often prone to even more complications than just typical fistulas. Additionally, you can use tunneled lines. These are large bore IVs that are inserted into large central veins, and they are tunneled under the skin, which helps prevent infection. However, these lines are still prone to getting infection, and they're actually the highest risk for developing infection of the three types of access points that patients who receive hemodialysis utilize. The second way that you can manage a person who needs dialysis is with peritoneal dialysis. This is using the abdominal cavity as a dialysis site. Catheter is surgically inserted into the abdomen in order to introduce dialysate, which is fluid, special fluid that we use in the abdominal cavity to clean the blood of toxins. This fluid is able to draw both fluid and toxin into the, the peritoneal cavity, which is then taken out sometime later by the person, usually done at home, usually done at night. This tends to be really convenient for patients because they don't have to go to a dialysis center to have it done but it places them at higher risk of developing infection, specifically in the abdomen around that area that they use for uh, the dialysis. The third way that you can manage a person who needs dialysis is through transplant. Unfortunately, transplants are relatively difficult to obtain. Uh, They typically will transplant uh, either a living or a dead person's kidney into the lower abdomen, which can have some interesting implications if a person develops trauma because their kidneys aren't located in the same place as before. However, when a person is placed on dialysis, they're often made to be immunosuppressed through medications that we provide them to prevent us rejecting the kidney that they are transplanted with. So those patients have higher rates of infection because their immune system does not work correctly. So kind of understanding those, the background of how people end up on dialysis and the three main ways that we can manage people who need dialysis, we're going to stop talking some of the boring stuff and kind of move through with Dr. Wilklinski with a couple of really interesting presentations and some discussion points. So the first question I have for Dr. Wilklinski is, when taking a history on a dialysis patient or a patient with chronic kidney disease, what specific questions do you ask? Yeah, thanks, Dr. Engel. So, you know, there's some specific important questions to ask in addition to your normal line of questioning. One of the big ones being like, what is a dialysis schedule? So as, we, as Dr. Engel mentioned, those who get hemodialysis uh, normally get, you know, they get it two to three times a week. So you want to know when do they go? How do they do it? Like what point do they access? And when was the last time that they went and got this done? And you also want to know about the length of the, the hemodialysis session. Uh, you know, try to determine how long each session is and if the patient has been completing full sessions. Sometimes if they're not feeling well or for other reasons, they might have what we call like partial sessions, meaning they don't get the full uh, round of dialysis, which has implications on fluid balance and uh, toxin status and such. Um, if they're coming from the HD center, try to note how far they were into the session before they they called to have the patient transported or when they started developing problems. 
It's also good to kind of know their volume status. And you know, when I mean by this is like, what is their dry weight, meaning their weight after they have a session of dialysis? Um, that can kind of help know, you know, better assess their fluid status. And it makes life easier for us on the ED side, you know, like when we're evaluating this patient. And you know, another important thing, you know, sometimes folks with uh, NHD or with end-stage renal disease have some abnormal vital signs at baseline. You know, sometimes they run a little hypotensive or hypertensive, or, you know, maybe their heart rates are abnormally resting at a higher rate. So it's good to kind of make note of this and ask the patient this. So we aren't like uh, erroneously treating someone's, you know, otherwise normal vital signs. When, when you're taking a blood pressure, making sure you're doing it on the different site than the HD site. So making sure you're taking on the opposite arm from the graft or the fistula, um, because if you take a blood pressure over the fistula or graft, it increases the risk of thrombosis of that site. And then finally, another good question to ask is, you know, knowing what the urine output is, do they make urine? How much do they make? Just because this also it has implications on when it comes to treating the patient. So having that, that information can be helpful. Cool, cool. Those are all really, really important things to ask your patient. So now, Nick, I'm going to provide you with a couple of case presentations, and I was hoping that you can tell me your thoughts about how you would manage this person who's coming to see you for their presentation. Yeah, sounds great. What I have is uh, first case, I've got a 65-year-old female. She's on uh, hemodialysis, normally Monday, Wednesday, Friday. She's missed her last two dialysis sessions because she wasn't feeling great and didn't have the energy to go to clinic. You show up and you see her. She's in moderate respiratory distress with difficulty speaking. She's tachycardic, hypertensive to 200 over 100, and her oxygen saturation on room air is at 80%. You listen to her lungs and you hear wheezing all around. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so this you know this case happens unfortunately more often than we'd like. My big concern here is uh, this patient is suffering from a you know a fluid overload state. You know these types of patients we treat similarly to like someone who has like a heart failure exacerbation. You want to make sure you treat them with some nitrates. You know either high flow nasal cannula or even CPAP. Um, sometimes even need intubation if they can't be managed on with those entities. Um, you know it's you know it's as I mentioned it's the same concept as heart failure where they have a lot like this fluid burden on their body that they can't manage. It's just a different etiology. It's just you know it's resulting from the kidneys as opposed to the heart failing. Now, you know, one th point to mention, you know, uh, Dr. Engel mentioned this patient presents with wheezing. And so the pulmonary exam on someone with fluid overload can be similar to someone with COPD. It's hard to like tease apart cardiac wheezing versus COPD wheezing as they can sound very similar. Uh, someone like this, if you were to give them bronchodilators, it might worsen their overall status just because what they truly need is that CPAP or oxygen therapy as opposed to bronchodilators to treat the fluid overload. The presence of ESRD on someone with respiratory distress and concurrent wheezing should make you think more about uh, fluid overload rather than COPD. Now, if there's a question whether or not this is e like a fluid overload or COPD, this is where end title really comes into play. Um, you can use that to differentiate between the two as someone with COPD, if you put the end title on them, you'll kind of notice that classic shark fin appearance, which makes you think more of a bronchospastic etiology as opposed to fluid overload. So someone who sounds wheezing but has a normal end tidal waveform and other risk factors for fluid overload, you should treat them more as a volume overload as opposed to bronchospasm. Now, other etiologies that we can think of in this patient who presents in respiratory distress um, in the setting of you know, known ESRD is you know, cardiac tamponade is another thing that these folks can develop. These ESRD patients are more prone to having a pericardial effusion, and if that effusion gets big enough, that can develop into tamponade. And so the presentation may look similarly where they'll present in respiratory distress, but the key difference here is they will be more hypotensive as opposed to hypertensive. 
So it's just something to keep in mind when evaluating these patients. Um, you can also get an EKG, which will show some dampened QRS amplitude. So you like the, the QRS amplitude look really small on your EKGs because the fluid is affecting the transmission of those electrical waves. You know, these patients ultimately need like a pericardiocentesis, but, you know, it's, you know, ultimately just need to get them to the hospital so we can assist with that. Finally, another concept here is like, you know, uremia is another thing that these patients can develop as, you know, as we mentioned, the kidneys filter out a lot of toxins. And so if this patient who's missing dialysis, they can have build up all those toxins and develop the state called uremia. Uh, this has other implications like on the patient's mental status, but also has cardiotoxic implications as well. And so a patient like this can kind of present in like respiratory distress, be altered. And so it's, it's treated, you know, symptom, symptomatically in the field, but, you know, it's just something else to keep in mind. Thanks, Dr. Wolklinski. I think those uh, two points of uh, thinking about cardiac tamponade as well as pulmonary edema with wheezing are really important to recognize in these dialysis patients. I'm going to give you a second case. You've got a 75-year-old gentleman. He's on dialysis. His last session was a week ago because he hasn't been able to get up and go to the hospital or go to his clinic to get dialysis. His family finds him altered and lethargic. He's on the couch. He can't speak. Initial set of vitals, he's hypotensive to 60 over 40, and his heart rate is 40 and bradycardic. His EKG is showing a bradycardia at a rate of 40 with a very wide QRS complex. He has a normal blood sugar and no signs of trauma. What things are you thinking off the bat, uh, Dr. Wilklinski? Oof. Yeah, this, this is a scary case, and this is a, one of the more feared complications of someone in, with ESRD. So my first thought is hyperkalemia. Uh, hyperkalemia is not always this obvious, as patients are not frequently symptomatic until their levels are critical, like this gentleman's. Anytime you see a slow rhythm with an abnormal intervals on EKG, and especially in someone with ESRD, hyperkalemia should come to mind. This is an extreme case, but the subtle EKG evidence of hyperkalemia starts with peak T waves, followed by prolongation of the PR interval, and then prolongation of the QRS interval. And then ultimately, in severe cases, patients will develop this sinusoidal type pattern with their EKG tracing, and those patients are the sickest of the sick. Now, our OEM guidelines indicate a cause of potential hyperkalemia, such as a patient being an ESRD, plus either bradycardia less than 50 or a wide QRS complex. Those patients should be treated for hyperkalemia. So first and foremost, the patient needs calcium gluconate three grams. This helps stabilize the cardiac membrane and needs to be redosed every 30 minutes you know, as needed. Some might remember we used to have peak T waves as an indication for treatment. But we remove that as it's really not specific. And if you see peak T waves, continue with cardiac monitoring and watch for other more concerning changes in route, such as that prolongation of your intervals. Now, there are other interventions to treat hyperkalemia, which lie outside our current guidelines, but you can consider utilizing online med control for further recommendations. They might recommend something like sodium bicarb or high-dose albuterol, as both of these can help push the potassium back into the cells and help stabilize the patient. Remember, all these interventions provide a temporary fix, and ultimately, this patient needs to get to the ER so we can help get that potassium out of their bodies, either with dialysis or with diuresis, um, but these patients need close monitoring. So just that, that's, you know, first and foremost, what I consider in this patient. Now, another thing outside of, you know, the obvious, like hyperkalemia, if you, you adjust this a bit and say the patient is altered, hypotensive, and concurrently tachycardic and febrile, you know, another thing you consider is infection. Right, so these ESRD patients are at a higher risk of infection um, from like their repeat vascular access. They might have other indwelling devices, um, and plus the concurrent uremia that they chronically have suppresses the immune system. Now, if they're on peritoneal dialysis, they might have a fever with abdominal pain, and that could be concerning from an abdominal infection. Now, these patients can develop distributive shock just like anyone else, 
and IV fluids are necessary as part of the resuscitation. Now, I can understand being concerned about giving an ESRD patient fluids is you don't want to overload them, but it is completely acceptable. What you do is, you know, you give them fluids, you monitor their respiratory status and make sure they're not developing worsening pulmonary edema or a worsening respiratory status to indicate that you might be overloading them. If they're not responding to IV fluids, then you might consider norepi as you would in other distributive shock cases and treat accordingly. Now, another third implication in this case that you can kind of throw a little curveball in is like, you know, say this is an altered mental status after the patient tripped and fell. I mean, and they did sustain head trauma. Like other, you know, patients that fall and hit their head, you want to be worried about intracranial um, bleeds and trauma. These patients are more prone to bleeding due to platelet dysfunction that can be spurred from underlying uremia. Therefore, ESRD patients are more prone to internal and, and intracranial bleeding following what would others seem like a low-risk trauma event. They're also anemic at baseline as the kidneys are responsible for stimulating blood production. So they have a lower reserve compared to your, your healthy kidney counterparts. And then further, you know, we talk about like fistulas and the AV grafts, and we'll talk about this in a short bit about, you know, those can also bleed very easily. Um, and patients might like bleed a significant amount from their fistulas. Bleeding from these sites are treated similarly as bleeding from other sites um, with direct pressure and hemostatic gauze and or tourniquet application in special severe circumstances. And I'll touch on that more in a bit. Thanks, Dr. Wolklinski. Those are really, really important points. I think I did also want to stress that, you know, with that concern for hyperkalemia, that can, that can obviously lead to cardiac arrest. So when you have a patient in cardiac arrest who has, uh, you know, either history findings that they're end-stage renal disease, or you find a fistula on them, you should be treating them for potential hyperkalemia through our guidelines with calcium. This is something you should be doing prior to calling online medical control, because it's well within our, our EMS guidelines to do that. Um, yeah. So those are really important points. I'm going to move us into uh, case three. So this is a 50-year-old female who is lightheaded at her dialysis clinic. You show up and the staff says, you know, hey, today we pulled off an extra two liters of fluid because the patient wanted to go visit her family, wasn't going to be able to get dialysis next. We tried to do a little bit more. You talk to the patient. She's a little bit hypotensive at 80 over 60. Her heart rate's 100. And she says she just feels a little bit woozy. And that's why they called you in to evaluate her today. What do you think? Mm. Yeah. So, you know, first and foremost is this dialysis center was trying to do a nice thing by pulling off some extra fluid, but unfortunately, you know, they might've pulled off a little too much as you know, we, this dialysis is meant to put these patients in a more euvolemic or normal volume state, but sometimes obviously the fluid removal can result in a hypovolemic state, but the dialysis circuit causes temperature shifts and underlying autonomic instability that can also precipitate hypotension. You know, but one thing, one point of caution here, like this case seems rather straightforward in the sense that this patient probably just needs a little fluid back because they took too much off. But don't be falsely reassured that this is all that's going on. Remember, as we just discussed, ESRD patients are at higher risk for infection, pericardial tamponade, cardiac ischemia. So you want to make sure you're doing a full eval, check a temp, listen to their heart sounds, look for JVD, and perform that 12 lead to try and rule out these other life-threatening processes. You know, once you kind of done all that and we're reassured that this is more just a hypovolemic state, treat with a little bit of fluid. Give small aliquots of IV fluid somewhere between like 250 and 500 at a time, you know, making sure you monitor the respiratory status and making sure you're not, you know, overloading them, so to say. Now, another concept that we want to think about when someone who's developed some um, altered mental status or hypotension during dialysis is, you know, an air embolism is something that, that these uh, patients are a little more at risk for. So say this patient complained of a headache before beginning to slur her words and then proceeded to become unresponsive. Her vitals are notable, like she's hypertensive, she's bradycardic, her pupils aren't equal. I mean, these are some concerns for like an air embolism that may, be, that may have gone to her, to her brain. 
you know, this could be a brain bleed, but given the fact that this happened in the setting of dialysis, you know, air embolism is something that we think of. You know, small amounts of air can be metabolized by the body, but larger amounts are problematic and can be lethal if they are introduced to the venous system. If air gets into the right side of the heart, it can migrate into the pulmonary system to present similar to the PE, like the patient will have chest discomfort, trouble breathing, they might be hypotensive. You know, so if an air embolism is suspected, the line needs to be clamped and the HG should be stopped immediately. Supportive measures include high flow oxygen and and preventing further embolism. This can be done by placing the patient in the left lateral recumbent position with the right heart up. So just kind of like, you know, putting the patient head down so their heart's up so that any air that's in the heart is in the, you know, is stuck in the right ventricle. The air can't move against gravity. And so this kind of can help air embolism um, propagating. The ultimate treatment for these folks is hyperbaric oxygen. Um, so they need to be transported accordingly. Dr. Wilkinski, can I ask you a question about those? You know, Please. like uh, air embolisms are really hard to figure out. So for me, thinking about this, we're, we're trying to present this as a, you know, a rare cause of either shortness of breath or, or uh, neurological failure in patients. Um, and, you know, we recognize most of these patients, if you saw somebody with an air embolism in their brain, hopefully our crews are just picking up that this is a stroke and then, you know, activating a code stroke. Or if our crews are recognizing hypoxia, they're considering pulmonary embolus and treating, you know, accordingly to stabilize vitals. The one thing that could, you know, give you that little bit of extra information, really what you were trying to emphasize is um, if like that dialysis line was left open or somebody notes that a huge thing of air was left into the line and infused into the patient. Outside of that, we recognize that this is a really rare complication that our crews are probably going to have a hard time picking up. Does that sound about right? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. This is more of a rare occurrence. And I think as you pointed out there, Dr. Engel, I think that's in special circumstances needs to be considered. And it's more so, yeah, if if you get some report that maybe a large amount of air was introduced or like the dialysis circuit was left open and then they develop these sorts of symptoms for sure. But yeah, those other things we've been talking about are definitely more common in these scenarios as opposed to like an air embolism. Cool. Hey, you know, I was hoping you could tell me a little bit more about this other thing on here called disequilibrium syndrome. Um, What's that and why does this happen with dialysis patients? Uh, yeah, disequilibrium syndrome is kind of a vague term in the sense that they kind of like patients will be complaining of just like general, you know, not feeling well, they might have some nausea, headaches, you know, and this usually happens while dialysis is uh, occurring. This syndrome is precipitated by like shifts in electrolytes and fluids during hemodialysis. You know, in the most severe cases, patients can become profoundly altered. Um, but, you know, overall, like, as you're probably thinking, there are a lot of things that can cause these types of symptoms. And therefore, this is what I call like a diagnosis of exclusion. So again, as we had talked about, you want to make sure these patients are getting a full eval with EKG, making sure you're doing a blood glucose to make sure that a hypoglycemic, doing a stroke eval. Um, you want to make sure you're ruling out those other life-threatening etiologies prior to coming to this conclusion of like disequilibrium syndrome. We and, often have a hard time doing that even in the emergency department, like oh. do all this other stuff. So that's a hard one to even pick up on. But sometimes patients know that they have it and they'll explain it to you um, when you yep. show up. Um, yeah. There was another there was another case here that I wanted to jump into. What if you know you showed up on scene to a dialysis patient and they're just there's blood everywhere and obviously it's bleeding from their fistula site. How do you recommend that our, our crews manage bleeding from fistulas? Yeah, so the concept and this is unfortunately a relatively common thing because people will come in with their fistulas just kind of, you know, 
birding and we have to try and control that. So the concept of hemorrhage control here is similar to other uh, areas of the body like in a non-ESRD patient. Just with the kept keeping in mind that this, you know, hemorrhage control is, might take longer to obtain in a, a dialysis patient. So you want to start with direct pressure. Um, you can have like a hemostatic gauze and those types of things are usually sufficient with, them, with keeping in mind that you're going to have to hold that there for a longer period of time. Try to avoid layering a bunch of gauze on top of the bleeding site as this can kind of just allow for more blood to be absorbed and you're really not controlling the bleeding per se because that can affect the direct pressure you're applying. So only do a couple layers of gauze to try and make sure you're providing adequate direct pressure. If the bleeding is significant and it's not responding to these treatment options and, and hemodynamic collapse is imminent, then you, you can get a tourniquet on there as well. The tourniquet may cause irreversible damage to the fistula or graft site, but uh, if the patient is about to, you know, die, that takes precedence. You want to make sure you get a tourniquet on there to stop the bleeding. Yeah. And, you know, I, I appreciate that. I, I know I'm jumping a little bit forward in this, but when we're talking about fistulas, can I use that fistula for IV access at all? Ooh, yeah, that's most times, no, this should be avoided at all costs, unless, you know, you're kind of at wit's end and you, you, you don't have any other um, points of access. So if you have no other way to access, like either with like an IV or IO, like say both of those have failed, like you can use this as last resort. Like, you know, when you're talking about accessing a fistula or a graft site, you know, the procedure is similar to starting a peripheral line. Just keep in mind that these sites are under a lot of pressure and therefore you might need like a pressure bag or something on that IV line to administer medications. It's not going to flow as freely as it would through like a normal IV line. You know, they have the risk of losing the graft site if you do access it er erroneously. But again, life takes precedence in this uh, situation. So if you have to, you can use it. Now, someone with a tunnel line, you know, another question I'll get asked sometimes is these people with tunneled uh, vascular access for their dialysis, can you use that? Um, again, it's not ideal, but it's, you know, something we can do in certain circumstances. You know, it's, think about it, it's essentially a central line. Um, keeping in mind that with these vascular ports for HD, you know, they'll have a blue port that indicates venous access and a red port that indicates arterial. And some may have a third port, which is like, it, like it will be white in color. And that's just also used as like a venous access to give medications or do blood draws. If there is a white port, you want to use that when administering medications. If not, use that blue port because, again, that's going to be accessing the venous system. You want to clean these sites really well, uh, take the cap off, attach a syringe. And then when you unclap it, you want to draw back 10 cc of fluid and waste that because sometimes there's these locking solutions in there and you don't want to introduce that into the patient's body. So you want to make sure you're drawing off that line before you're using it. Um, but so those are the, some considerations if you have to, um, just making sure you're doing this appropriately. Well, uh, thanks, Dr. Wilklitsky. I, uh, I didn't know that. So I learned that uh, immediately just now. Um, <laughs> well, great. We're getting to close to the end. I'm going to move you to our, our fifth case here. Um, so you're, you are called to the home of a 35-year-old patient who is complaining of abdominal pain. They're with family. You show up. They feel very warm. Their initial blood pressure is 70. They're tachycardic to 130, and they're complaining of abdominal pain. And you kind of look into the on their abdomen, and they have this port coming out of their abdomen. What, what, what are your thoughts here? Yeah, so this is a great case. Like, this is a good example of you know, a patient who's getting peritoneal dialysis. And as we mentioned earlier, these folks are at pretty high risk of developing peritonitis or infections within the abdominal cavity from this you know, repeat access. So this is something that um, I would be concerned of another sepsis type situation and, and the infection being within the abdominal cavity there. Now, remember how we talked about how this peritoneal dialysis is done. This diacylate, like the solution 
is put into the belly to draw out the toxins later. And so the, this dialysate contains a large amounts of sugars at times, and those sugars can be absorbed within the body. So there's one thing to keep in mind is like these folks can develop a hyperosmolar, hyperglycemic type state as well that could be contributing to their altered mental status. So just making sure like in addition to your normal workup, you know, you want to make sure you're checking a blood sugar too, because they can be profoundly hyperglycemic as a result of this. Um, but overall, this sounds more most concerning for like an infection in the belly that could be leading to this presentation. Uh, we've learned a lot on those five cases. You want to close us out with some closing comments here, Dr. Wuplinski? Yeah, she's like, yeah, so that was a lot. We covered a lot of cases to try and hammer home some of the important concepts when evaluating a dialysis patient. But some main takeaways are ESRD patients have some special considerations when it comes to their electrolytes, like their potassium, their high risk for infection, fluid overload, pericardial fusion and or tamponade and bleeding. Approach these patients with care as they can become one of your, some of your sickest cases. And so as always, thanks so much for listening. Uh, we wish you all a very happy holiday season. Thanks so much for what you do and stay warm out there. Until next time, take care. Thanks, Docs. Lots of great information there and on a topic that we probably don't talk about nearly often enough. So I appreciate your time. I uh, thank everybody for taking the time out to listen. I'll echo Dr. Wilkinski's sentiments. Have a happy holiday. Stay safe, and we'll see you next month. Bye now.